Welcome to the BMGA Leadership Speaker Series podcast, hosted by Gbemi Abudu, the founder and managing partner of BMGA Enterprise Limited, a finishing school for the fourth industrial revolution. On this podcast, great leaders share the career path and leadership journey of triumphs and challenges with the intention of fostering and nurturing the leadership potential of the next generation of leaders. From moguls in the entertainment industry to entrepreneurs, there's a learning point for every aspiring leader. On today's episode, we have Liz Aguatabi, the Vice President of Global Policy at Global Citizen. Liz has over 18 years of experience in healthcare, public health, public policy, international development, and urban resilience experience across the United States, Africa, Latin America, and Asia. She is passionate about social impact, global health, international development, and philanthropy. Thank you for being with us today. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Super excited um, to be part of this conversation. First, I would like to congratulate you again on starting your new job, which you started right at the onset of the pandemic. So can you please just tell us a little bit how that has been so far? Yeah, so um, I joined Global Citizen, um, our New York office, as the global vice president for uh, policy. And I joined on March 9th, and the global pandemic um, was announced on March uh, 12th. So I literally went to the office for a couple of days, met some of my colleagues, um, did meet everyone, um, and we went into lockdown in New York. As you know, New York was the epicenter for uh, the U.S. um, outbreak. Um, and have spent the past few months, it seems like I've been at Global Citizen for much longer, um, (laughs) but have spent the past few months leading a a policy on two great campaigns that we've had. We had one in April, uh, One World Together at Home, where um, we raised 128 million US dollars um, towards um, testing and access to uh, critical services for communities impacted by COVID-19. And then we just did another campaign, Global Goal Unite for the Future, um, where we were more focused on development of vaccines, medical countermeasures, and the equitable distribution to the communities most impacted. Um, And because that campaign was happening at a time when uh, our world was in utter turmoil um, because of um, the injustices and and, um, inequities um, that people of color face in the US Mm -hmm. and across the world, um, we also uh, had a a big emphasis on increasing access in an equitable way and also addressing many of the social um, and economic injustices that preclude certain communities to opportunity. Um, And in that campaign, we raised um, 7 billion US dollars. Um, And it was a really successful campaign. um, And we did that over about uh, three and a half, four weeks. Um, And so I'm just just coming off the heels of of two um, huge campaigns back to back. Um, And so, yeah, it's exciting. It's an exciting time. (laughs) That's amazing. I mean, your career is literally focused on impact because prior to Global Citizen, you were with the Rockefeller Foundation. Can you just walk us through your career? How did you get here? 
<clears throat> yeah, certainly. So, you know, I think it all stems from as a child, um, my father would always say to me, to whom much is given, more is expected. Mm, yes. um, and, you know, for the longest, I didn't really understand what that was. Um, but, you know, through in, throughout my upbringing, you know, my parents would do things like um, holidays, you know, Christmas, where most people, um, it's a rather indulgent holiday in most families, in most upper middle class families, especially. But, you know, my parents would host open houses and they, they'd invite families that um, were less fortunate or, or who, who couldn't celebrate in that grand a manner. Um, and we would share whatever we had with those families, you know, and, and there was always in the back of my mind um, a recognition that no matter how much you have or how little you have, that because you do have, there's an onus on you to uh, support those who do not have as much right and so that in the early years without even understanding the parable you know and without even understanding its biblical origins um you know but it was ingrained in me that my life would have to be a life of service um and so you know when i went off to um college so of course i'm west african and um, you are either a doctor a lawyer maybe a pharmacist if you can't get into um medical school and an engineer um and you know so i went off <laughs> yeah. to school and i was really good in the sciences um and i was also very artistic and creative um and, and i still sit today <laughs> <laughs> and and so you know i went off and and thought i was going to go to medical school um, and was on the medical school track and, and decided to get a first bachelor's degree in biology. But then I also pursued the arts. So I have uh, also a degree in art history. Um, and that for me was a consolation of not being uh, pigeonholed into the sciences and was preparing to go to medical school. But then at some point decided, you know, medical school is such an investment and I'm not confident that I want to make this sort of investment um, given that I wasn't confident that I would want to remain in patient care um, for the duration of my career. Um, I'm also a very fiery um, personality and um, a champion for the underdog and have always been um, and so somehow I knew that advocacy and policy were in my uh, future. Um, and so I didn't go to uh, medical school. I had a, an insightful conversation with my aunt who was a nurse and she, she shared, she said, well, what is it that you want? What is it that you like about medicine? And I said, the ability to touch and impact individuals and communities um, families. And she said, well, you know, you can do that as a nurse also. And I said, really? I didn't know any nurses. I, I only knew my aunt who was a nurse and didn't really know a lot about what she was doing. Um, and so I explored that, applied to nursing school and got another bachelor's degree um, in nursing. Um, and I practiced as a nurse um, at Johns Hopkins in the surgical ICU. Um, I knew that if I was going into nursing um, with state-of-the-art technology and just cutting-edge care, um, and so I, I practice in the ICU. A lot of people don't know this about me, but I did not. I had no idea. 
I still maintain a New York State uh, license and I do wow. my continuing education credits. Um, I do not practice, um, but I know that it's a skill set that is critical and, and needed um, across the world. And if I'm ever called to serve in that capacity, I want to be ready. Um, to do that. Um, and so, you know, after nursing school, um, <clears throat> worked in nursing for a while. And then I saw, I worked in East Baltimore. I don't know if anyone has seen The Wire or any other um, yeah. um, movies or TV series about Baltimore. But at the time, Baltimore was an emerging city. Now they have a Whole Foods where, where I used to live. Um, and they have like all of these uh, amenities um, that, um, cities, I guess, um, develop when uh, there's an urban migration. You know, at the time I worked in really uh, a desolate community where there was so much need. And after taking care of one young person, uh, too many that came in um, with trauma um, from either a gunshot or an assault, a physical assault or stabbing. Back then, people stabbed each other more than they shot each other. Um, you know, I started to feel that I could take care of one patient at a time, but that the true um, entry point for impact would be addressing the systemic um, challenges that that community and many communities like it face. And so that spurred um, an interest in, in policy because I thought policy was one way that I could really begin to have more broad uh, scale change and really begin to impact um, communities. Um, and then of course, you know, I, so I went on to be a US presidential management fellow um, because, you know, challenge is great and I'm always challenging myself. Um, and so that was a really selective, um, exclusive leadership development um, program. Um, and, you know, being in that uh, program required that I had to take a significant pay cut you know, because at this point I had established myself prior to going to grad school. So I went to grad school, I got a master's in public health in policy uh, and finance, and then uh, did an additional certificate in uh, health disparities and, and health of vulnerable populations. Because, you know, I've always pushed myself to do a bit more than- Yes, you do. <laughs> than <laughs> Yes, you, you know, do. mediocrity is just not an option. <laughs> option, yes. yes. Um, and so, you know, I, I, I um, worked in policy in Washington, D.C., worked for the U.S. Secretary of Health and Human Services, um, and completed my uh, fellowship. Um, and so I moved to New York, um, worked for the federal government still out of one of the regional offices, had an opportunity then to work for Mike Bloomberg as part of um, his administration, um, leading vulnerable populations uh, planning in the Department of Health. Um, and then I got headhunted uh, to work uh, with um, Orbis International, which is a leading um, global health um, um, NGO um, and did uh, system strengthening, health system strengthening across the world in Latin America, Asia, Africa. Um, and then I did some consulting, some policy consulting as well. Um, and, you know, I, I got a taste of working in Africa. Um, I did some work in Cameroon, where I'm from, in Ethiopia, Zambia, South Africa, Nigeria. Um, and my heart um, was just so full working in Africa. I mean, my heart is full 
serving um, because I, I really do think oftentimes I'm asked about my leadership uh, journey and it's really about serving. It's a, it's a journey of serving. And so my heart was full then, um, but working in Africa was special for me. Um, I felt like I was able to give back directly to my people um, and my people is, I mean, I'm Pan-African, you know, I, I go to Francophone Africa and I fit right in. Um, and, and, you know, everyone thinks I'm Senegalese in Senegal. I go to Nigeria and everyone thinks I'm Nigerian. Um, and in South Africa, I, I have a natural home there. And, and that's the case for many, many nations um, across the continent. Um, and so the past, um, I would say 10 years have really been um, devoted to serving my people. And, and um, I've really enjoyed that. So yeah, so that's my career in a nutshell. <laughs> that's really amazing. You've had a very rich and I would say probably fulfilling career from what you've said. Um, so what would you say if you had to look back at your career, you just painted a picture of your career for us. If there was one thing you could change, what would you have changed? Um, you know, so I spent a lot of time getting a lot of degrees. <laughs> <laughs> Don't we all do that? <laughs> yeah. So a lot of time and investment in uh, getting, uh, <laughs> yes. I would probably, I would probably have changed that from the onset. So I probably would have gotten a uh, liberal arts degree, right? Okay. Um, and then would have given myself a, a bit more time to explore, and hopefully I would have come to the same conclusion of wanting a career and a life of service. Right. And there are many ways that you could you could achieve that. I would so probably um, I earlier in, in, in my life, I took myself a lot more seriously than I do now. Mm. I would I would probably um, cut myself a little more slack um, earlier in my career. Um, and then also just recognizing that there are certain critical skills that you need to develop um, mm. as you are growing in your career. Right. Um, but those many of those skills are sector agnostic. Right. So rather than preparing myself for entry into a specific career like medicine at the time. Right. I would have probably invested more time in developing other um, critical skills. And I, and I know we'll talk about this a bit more. Yes. Um, but, you know, some of the work that you're doing um, is helping to identify what those critical skills are and then honing in on them. And those are skills which are transferable, um, again, sector agnostic. So I probably would have invested more time in pursuing. That's amazing. So there are two things you mentioned that I want to touch on. First, you said you were harder on yourself when you were younger. Why do you think that is? Because I, I mean, I hear this often from a lot of leaders saying that, that if they had to look back, one of the things they would say is, you know what, life, it, it, it will work out in the end. Why do you think we all feel that innate um, feeling within us to be hard on ourselves when we're younger? Yeah, so for me, I mean, I don't know how... Uh transparent other leaders are in responding to this question, but I'll tell you, it was the fear <laughs> of my mom and dad. <laughs> it was the fear of, of disappointment. I mean, enough, yes. for me, that was the genesis of it. Um, I knew also that they had made multiple uh, sacrifices um, mm -hmm. for, for me to have the opportunities that I had, um, and I didn't want to disappoint them. Mm -hmm. um, and so that required me to be hard on myself. And then as I got older, it became less about the fear of them. And I mean, I'm still scared of them, like, you know, <laughs> to this day. 
my, my <laughs> dad is deceased, um, um, uh, bless his soul. Um, but my mom is, is, is still alive. And, you know, her um, opinions of me and the work that I do and the way I show up and how I contribute, um, that's important. And I don't want to disappoint her. Um, and then also my community, you know, I'm African and, and our communities are, are very much vested in our success, right? And so if you disappoint, um, if you're a disappointment, you're a disappointment not only to your immediate family, but to your community that's um, invested in supporting you. Um, and then the final thing really is, as I got older, I started to to become more conscious of my innate ability. And so that helped to sort of temper uh, uh, some of um, the, I was, I was a, a bit less critical um, because I started to understand better um, mm -hmm. my innate abilities. I started to understand where my strengths were, right? Mm -hmm. And started to really double down uh, in those areas of strength and be more compassionate in those areas where I just wasn't as strong. Um, so that's amazing. You talked a lot about you've talked a lot about um, the work you've done in Africa over the years. Um, what would you say has been the major challenges for you as a leader in Africa to be able to get your work done? I mean, look at me. I look young. I look a lot younger than I actually am, <laughs> and I'm a woman. Yes, yeah. and I'm a woman. Um, and you know, in many African uh, societies, they're very much patriarchal. Yes. Um, they tend to be ageist. Um, I now have some gray hairs. You probably can't see them, but for the longest time, I didn't have any. Um, and oftentimes I would walk into an office um, and I would be viewed as, you know, a young woman who um, is supporting someone else possibly, mm. right? Not as the leader. Yeah. When I was at Rockefeller, I had uh, a number of, of, of incidents where I would walk into, so I worked with, with public um, leaders, elected officials, corporate um, um, leaders, um, you know, but I, I walked into the office of a very senior public official and um, he, he said, is this who Rockefeller sent us? Um, is this who Rockefeller sent us? Where's the boss? And I walked in and I said, but I am the boss. <laughs> and I love those moments because they can be quite wow. um, And so, you know, in that case, I had to do a press uh, briefing with this official. And so we went in, we did the press briefing, and then many of his cabinet members um, um, were part of that briefing and they stayed on afterwards and um, we had a really uh, engaging conversation and at the end of that he called me into his private uh, chambers and said listen I, I i need to tell you i'm really impressed by your performance and i said well why why are you impressed and, and he said well when you walked in here i just thought oh who's the small girl um, in, you know, in that condescending yeah. just kind of way, who's the small girl that yeah. uh, Rockefeller sent to us? And, and so, you know, I said, well, just so you know, this isn't my first rodeo, yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, but I, I, I think being a woman leader in Africa, you face that a lot, the ageism, the patriarchy. Absolutely. Um, and, and, you know, to be quite honest, also being an attractive woman, um, and, and, I, and I say this not to, to 
um, be arrogant. But if you're an attractive woman, um, oftentimes um, your attractiveness, your physical appearance can be misconstrued um, mm -hmm. in a male-dominated um, uh, space, yes. right? And, and so I think those are some of the challenges, just managing that. Um, and being able to show up and let people know that I'm here to serve with integrity. I'm here uh, to serve with purpose. Yes. Um, and I need business. Wait, so let's, 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 let's dive, let's dig into that a little bit more. When you say managing, how, what are the steps you have taken and knowing who our audience is, majority of our audience are women within the age of 22 to 26. And a lot of the things you mentioned, they're going to encounter it at some point in their career as well. How do you manage that? Certainly. So I hate to say this, but you know, the first and foremost is before people hear you, get to know you, they see you, yes. right? Early in my career, I had a, um, a manager who said to me, um, and I was fairly junior at, at that point. She said to me, she said, Liz, you know, you should always dress for the role that you aspire to be in. Thank you for mentioning that, actually. <laughs> and so Stress that. that's, the, I mean, that, that has been my mantra all through my career. You know, I often, uh, people will laugh at me and they'll say, my God, like your appearance, like you pay so much attention to it. And I pay so much attention to it um, because I want to be perceived in a certain way. Right. I want to be taken seriously. I don't want my appearance to be a distraction. Right. And so, you know, I don't wear mini skirts to, to work. In, in, in fact, I won't wear a dress if it's not something that hits below my knees. And I have great legs. I mean, I have great legs. <laughs> Yes, we know. <laughs> you know athletic um, legs, but I don't want that to be a distraction when I'm yeah. around, right? And I'm curvy, right? But um, I'm very mindful that certain uh, types of clothing uh, can be a distraction. Right. Yes. So no low V-necks. Um, and, you know, and, and then I, I'm also very mindful of cultural sensitivities because I work globally. You know, mm -hmm. so when I worked in in uh, in Bangladesh, um, which is a um, much more modest um, culture, you know, I would not leave my arms exposed. Just being able to reflect that um, gives you a point of entry and an ability to connect with yes. uh, the uh, communities that you're serving and, and where you're working. Um, so that's first and foremost, how you show up, your appearance, mm -hmm. right? The second thing um, that I think is really important is to um, define yourself, right? Define yourself. So I want to be known as a woman of integrity, right? And I want my values um, to be known wherever I'm working, right? And I'm very clear about articulating that um, in a concise way so that when I go into a room, if there are individuals in that room who have um, uh, misconceptions on what the opportunity is, it's very clear once I step into the room what my vision is um, for that engagement, that encounter, right? Um, and so I think it's very important that, especially as women operating in this space, um, that you're able to um, articulate 
um, uh, your values and, and, and that you're consistent in operating um, in a manner um, that is aligned with your values. Um, and then, you know, the third thing is um, just being patient yet vigilant. Mm. You know, so I know things aren't going to change overnight. They probably won't change in my generation, um, but I continue to push. And where I have an opportunity to set the record straight, I, I don't squander that opportunity. Um, and at the same time, um, I'm also patient in the sense that I know, you know, the Rome wasn't built um, overnight. Overnight, yes. That's actually, that's a good segue um, to this whole issue of gender inequality, because when you say be patient and um, considering the type of career you've had, where you've had the opportunity to work in different parts of the world, how would you say the conversation around gender inequality has evolved over the years? And do you think it's getting better? in terms of addressing the issue or is it getting worse? Yeah, so I mean, it's interesting um, because I tend to operate from the intersectionality of gender and race okay. and other um, traits of uh, individuals that are marginalized and excluded, right? Okay. I think that if we become so myopic that we only view this challenge from a male-female um, perspective, um, I think I think that it further alienates others, right? And so, in 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 this nation, and I and I know that um, the um, policy uh, climate is different across the world, right? But I, I think it's important to acknowledge that exclusion on the basis of gender, race, um, sexual preference, uh, religion, creed, whatever it is, um, um, exclusion um, is wrong, first and foremost, it's wrong. Um, and that if we support exclusion on the basis of whatever it is, right? Um, it pretty much sanctions exclusion against ourselves, right? And so I, I often say, we're only safe if all of us are safe, safe right? Um, and so if I'm, if I'm saying, um, let's exclude men or, or boys or, you know, um, transgendered or, or gay, lesbian, et cetera, then I'm also saying that as a Black woman, <laughs> that it's okay to be excluded. Um, and so that's been how I've approached um, this. And I think the conversation increasingly is shifting to focus more on um, intersectional um, uh, disparities and intersectional marginalization, right? And so it's no longer just women and girls. Um, it's, it's broadened beyond that. It's also thinking about uh, the role that racism um, and, and you know, social and economic um, discrimination um, mm -hmm. have, have played um, in leaving some members of our um, society behind. You, I mean, you seriously, Liz, you constantly, you're one of those people I say you inspire me because <laughs> as busy as you are, as you're constantly there trying to, literally trying to make a change um, in the world, you are able to find, 
I mean, people say the work-life balance, but more so still balance other areas of your life, with your family, your fashionista. We all know that about you. We can catch you in the front row of New York Fashion Week. And Lagos Fashion Week, yes, I always see you there. So how are you able to balance your passion, like passion and being able to just live life? Because I know, I mean, you, come, you fall into the category of one of those individuals really living a rich life. How are you able to do that? So I want to dispel the myth of um, balance. I don't believe in balance. Yes. (laughs) Um, What I ascribe to is agility. I value agility so much more. Um, For me, it's important um, to be able to show up in whatever uh, space or sphere I'm in um, and to show up fully in that moment and to be present, right? And so therefore, when I say I don't believe in balance, I don't believe that 10% of my time, I can be a super mom. And you know, I'm a mom to a young toddler yes. who's super yes. active. Yes. Um, and you know, 10% of my time, I can be a super wife or 10% of my time, I can be a super friend, member of society. And that's what, that's already about 50%. And then the other 50%, I can be a super executive. It doesn't work that way. And if I viewed life as such, then I'd be struggling with this um, juggling act of trying to balance it all. I don't believe in that. I don't ascribe to that. What I do value is ensuring that I have um, the right um, um, infrastructure in place to allow me to seamlessly um, uh, navigate each of those areas where I need it, right? So that I can show up um, as a mom when it's most critical to be fully present as a mom and to say, um, put everything else on hold or as a partner or as, a, as an executive, um, et cetera. So I think first and foremost, dispel that myth of balance. It doesn't exist. I don't believe in it. I don't ascribe <laughs> to it. Um, it's not an aspiration for me at all. Um, there are times when I'm called upon to be a super executive and that's what I am. Um, and, you know, my family, um, has, has been quite supportive. And, and, you know, for women, I always say this too, as we think about career choices, you know, as, as much thought as we put into career choices, let's also uh, put more even into um, the partner, the, the choice of partner that we, you know, choose to share our lives with if that's in the cards for you, um, because that's a, a significant determinant to your success and your ability to um, deliver on your personal objectives. If you don't have a partner that's supportive and willing to walk with you on that journey, I mean, it's almost like self-sabotage. I won't beat around the bush when it comes to it. Um, <laughs> um, and, and so, yeah, so that's really um, how I've been able to navigate um, and you know, and, and also I've been able to, again, increasingly become more and more compassionate and acknowledging that sometimes I can't be a rock star mom. I mean, I have been baking mini cupcakes um, for my son's school for his birthday. Sometimes I, I bake those cupcakes after coming off a 36-hour flight. And then sometimes I just can't, so I buy them. <laughs> and, 
and I package them. I like <laughs> you know, and I take yes. them. And so that's what, for me, agility um, represents. You know, it's being able to say, I'm okay with, I didn't bake cupcakes and I didn't bake cookies for, you know, the bake sale, um, but I bought them. So, and that's good enough for that moment. Yeah. <laughs> that's amazing. So one thing you brought up, um, one thing you've said that uh, that's a common thread in literally in your career and personal life is intentionality. You've talked mm. about, in, I mean, intentionality, intentionality, intentionality. You mentioned, you talked about some critical skills. What critical skills from your perspective do you think have served you well in your career? Yeah, so um, first of all, active listening is a, is a skill that um, we, I mean, as a little kid, your, your, your mom or your dad, um, your caregiver tells you, you have to listen, you have to pay attention, you have to follow directions. But mm-hmm. active listening is a very important skill. And it's a <clears throat> skill that um, I found to be critical. Some of the leaders that I admire the most are people who say less, listen more, and they're not listening passively, but they're listening with interest, with uh, uh, curiosity, um, with a, a genuine desire to understand more, um, and um, are present, right? And so I would say active listening is is one of the key skills that I've had to um, develop. Um, effective communication, believe it or not, <laughs> is... he. <laughs> I mean, yes. no one wants to read an email that is a tome, right? And um, just being able to articulate whatever the message is in a clear, concise manner, whether that's written or that's oral, um, is critical. Um, And then, you know, there's other soft skills, right, which no one teaches you in in university and no one really prepares you (laughs) for the workforce. um, But... um, learning how to interact um, with your peers, with your superiors, with your subordinates, right? Everyone wants to be a boss. Everyone wants to be a leader. Um, But it's important that you understand the relationship across the various layers of of management, if you're in a corporate setting, um, and even in the nonprofit um, public sector, I think it's really important to understand the various strata and how those um, interact and where you fit in and how you're interacting with the strata above and below you. Um, So that, I feel, is also really important. Um, And then, you know, empathy is, I don't know if that's a skill, so to speak. It is, yeah. (laughs) You know, empathy, empathy goes a long way. That, you know, in the corporate setting, whether that's um, when I'm at the table negotiating deals, um, Mm -hmm. you know, because I, I approach my work with, uh, with an emphasis on empathy and humility. Um, I sometimes am able to receive grace, you know, from those across the table, sitting across the table for me in ways that I don't think I would um, experience if I wasn't uh, showing up with empathy and humility. 
Oh, thank you so much. So what we're going to shift gears now to um, questions from the participants, and we also have some stakeholders um, who are listening in on the conversation today. So the first question I have here is transferable skills appear to differ depending on who you speak with. What, what will you say are the transferable skills for young people for these times that you have come, that you have come to identify? Mm -hmm. um, that's a great question. So, you know, historically, um, education models have uh, really overemphasized um, specialization, right? Okay. So in, in most West African programs, they start off fairly early, you're either an art student or a science student, right? And then once you're in the arts, um, it's you're either a uh, linguist, you're either or, or um, you're uh, sort of in the literary um, arts, right? And I think that um, the bottom line is, are you able to absorb analyze and synthesize complex materials and data, right? Okay. And then be able to share those, um, that information with others who may not be as familiar in a way that it's resonant and um, it's digestible, right? And I think that that is a skill that we should all be developing. And it doesn't matter if you're an engineer or you're a lawyer, um, a doctor, um, an a, a astrophysicist, right? At the end of the day, it's how do you deal with complex <coughs> data, right? And, and what are your critical thinking skills that allow you to perform analysis on complex data? Right. Um, and I think if you were to spend your, your time developing that agnostic of what your degree is in, I think it prepares you for the workforce of today because there are many more, I think, many more generalists today than there are specialists. specialists yeah, so, true. you know, I have a nursing degree, but like I said, I haven't practiced nursing in over 13 years. Okay. Um, yes, yeah, 10 or 13 years. Um, but the critical thinking skills that I built um, as a nurse and through my nursing education are skills that I'm now using in agriculture. So I've been doing some work in agriculture and nutrition security. Um, you know, it's the same uh, critical thinking skills that uh, when I... Uh, uh, worked, I, I, I led an urbanization, urban resilience program at Rockefeller, um, where in each city, I worked in a different sector, right? And so in mm -hmm. some city, it was uh, wash, so water and sanitation, which I'm very comfortable with, given other experiences I've had as a volunteer. Um, mm -hmm. uh, but in some cities, it was transportation. Like, what do I know about transportation? I'm, I'm not... Um, a, a civil engineer and not, you know, but again, those critical thinking skills that were honed early in my career and which I continue to develop because I don't think anyone really becomes a master of anything. I, I think absolutely giving yourself um, the space to learn and grow and improve each and every day is also important. Um, that's a skill that um, most of us should be cultivating. Um, <laughs> 
And so, yeah, I would say that for the, the, the workforce of the future, less de-emphasize um, specialization. Um, and, you know, I, I, I think the generalist is much more in demand. The generalist with, with uh, soft skills and hard skills um, is much more in demand than the specialist. Thank you. That was a great answer to that. Um, another question we have here is, how have you been able to manage, how have you been able to manage your networks? Yeah. Developing networks. and managing your network. Your network is your network. <laughs> it's so true. It's so true. Um, so I'll caveat this by saying, um, as valuable as your networks are, don't be stingy with your networks. Sure. Yes. Don't be stupid. <laughs> um, <laughs> because I know, I know that for I know that for a lot of people, it's I'm going to build this robust network and then I'm going to keep it to myself. I'm going to mm. keep it close to my chest. Um, <laughs> networks are ineffective if you're not willing to um, be benevolent to to some extent. I mean, within reason. You don't want to. Correct put um, those trusted individuals in your network. You don't want to expose them. Um, but, you know, I operate from a place of, uh, again, I'm really intentional about uh, connecting um, people within my networks. Um, and, and I'm largely perceived as a connector um, in my network. And that in itself is an asset because it encourages others to connect me Yes. Um, when I'm in, because my network obviously isn't exhaustive, right? But yeah. because I'm willing to be generous um, and to share my network with others, um, I have no shortage of, of individuals who I could call, um, you know, in the middle of the night, drop of a hat to say, hey, I'm trying to navigate xyz and i don't know where to start can you connect right. me to someone who might be able to support me um and they will and oftentimes it's it's because i have proactively in most cases you know i don't yes. often wait for people i don't wait for people to call and ask me for things but i'm constantly um faced with opportunity and i'm constantly thinking about how whatever opportunity i'm faced with can support someone within my network um, and making those connections. I couldn't agree more. That's, it's so important because what happens sometimes is, I mean, I've heard stories where people have had negative experiences and sort of forces them to sort of hold on and say that, you know, I need to be very careful. But, but I think when you just sort of have that discernment, so you're not just, you're not, like you said, exposing people to just anyone. You're using that discernment in order to determine who you're recommending to. So I couldn't agree more. Um, what would you consider as the high and low moments of your career? Woo, that's a great question. <laughs> um, let's see, I'll start with the high um, because I've had so many more high moments than lows and I've had deep lows too and I'll share those. Um, so the high moment, I think when I, um, When I became able to, when I found myself in a position where I was able to bring others along, that was a high for me. Interesting. Right? So when I was in a position where I was making hiring decisions, when I was in a position 
um, where I was making key policy decisions. Um, when I was in a position where my voice counted and where it mattered, that enabled me to bring along those whose voices may have been otherwise silenced, right? Um, those who otherwise would not have been invited to the table, right? Those who um, would never have had a seat at a table, right? I think that has been an all-time career high for me. Um, and so across um, many of the organizations where I've worked, um, you know, I'm a black woman, right? <laughs> and I'm an African woman. And I, and I often joke and I say, I've worked in a lot of ivory towers. <laughs> you know? And so for me, ensuring that I can bring people um, um, to the table who look like me, who have a shared experience, a shared life experience, um, and who are critical to representing um, the perspective of the many communities that we serve, you know? And, and so it's, for me, it's not, I don't, not to be trite, I don't only hire black African women. Um, I hire a lot of them, I really do, um, <laughs> wherever I've been, but um, it's, it, it's also, you know, black African men. It, it's also people of um, economic disadvantage, um, right? Because, you know, you and I both know that for a lot of these places, these halls that I've walked, um, if you don't have a sponsor um, yes. access into these, um, you know, halls is quite limited. Yes. Um, so that's been, that's been a huge, huge, huge high for me. And there've been many others, but I think those are more personal highs. I mean, we raised $7 billion a couple of weeks ago, you know, and uh, led a really successful campaign. I'm super proud of that. We were recently um, uh, cited in the Guinness Book of um, World uh, Record um, for our, our fundraising efforts um, and our virtual uh, concerts. Super proud of that. So that sort of stuff is important too. Um, but some of the lows, ooh, there've been, there've been quite a few. Um, lows for me have often come at a time when I didn't feel um, that I worked hard enough or I did enough to change an outcome, right? And oftentimes if it's a negative outcome, um, sometimes I've taken it personal. Can you give us an example? When you say that, I find that hard to believe for you, but can you give us like yeah, a, an example? Yeah, sometimes, sometimes okay, so, and, and I don't want to, um, I don't want to overexpose the organization and okay. the circumstances, but you know, I once worked for an organization that was making really difficult uh, funding decisions, right? And they decided to prioritize funding for a specific region, um, but not the region that I was working in, where my heart was and where I, you know, invested blood, sweat, and tears. Um, and as a result, uh, sort of. Uh, you know, wound down the um, intervention in that region, right? Um, I took it really personal um, because I felt I could have done more um, and I could have been more of an advocate 
I, I wasn't sure how because I thought I'd exhausted all possible um, options. Options, um, but you know, in hindsight, I probably could have done. I probably should have insisted on certain things that I had a gut feeling about earlier, right? And mm. I probably should have been louder. Mm. So that was tough. Um, other lows for me, believe it or not, as much as I exist across so many different uh, spheres, um, uncoupling my identity, my personal identity, and my professional identity. <laughs> um, you know, for me, it took losing a job actually to be able to do that. Um, and so recognizing that I am so much more than the sum of these two sort of disparate identities um, was, was hard. It was hard. Like you, you, Somehow, and, and I don't know if this is the case for you or for, but for most of us who are mission driven, um, it, it becomes really difficult to separate yourself from your mission and from your work. Absolutely. Um, I couldn't agree more. Yes. <laughs> and, yes. and so for me, having to do that work, um, that was a, it was a tough, a difficult process you know, because you see yourself in a certain way. And when that's no longer validated by your title, your job, you know, and all the things that come with it, um, and you have to confront yourself <laughs> and you're, it's like you're naked and it's like, oh, I got to deal with this. Um, but, you know, and it was a lot of hard work um, and it continues to be something that I'm mindful of um, moving forward. So yeah, those are probably some of the lows. Wow, that's incredible. Um, I think we have time for maybe two more questions. Was there ever a time in your career you felt like giving up? And if yes, how did you handle that? Oh, heck yeah. So I just, I mentioned <laughs> that I became a mom four years ago. And I'm a geriatric mom, so it's different. Um, <laughs> I, think when, I think when you're a mom, when you're like in your 20s, like you just don't even know any better. And you just kind of roll with the punches. But when you're an older mom, you're like thinking about everything. You're like intentional about everything. Like, what's my child eating? Like, um, you know, I, I, I was that mom that in spite of um, <clears throat> traveling all over the world and being on planes every other day, insisted on making organic home cooked meals for my child. Um, and these were gourmet meals. Um, so like my kid never ate sandwiches and things like that but he would ask for couscous and lamb ragu um things like that <laughs> um and which by the way lisa's an incredible cook <laughs> <laughs> um and you know and and now we grow our own vegetables and all yes. of that good stuff and yeah fun stuff like that um but you know so becoming a mom older more established in my career and then uh, taking some time off, I took I took six months off of maternity leave, which was brutal, by the way. And I and maternity leave is not all what it's cut out to be. Three months in, I took a break from maternity leave and went back to work, <laughs> um, and then continued. Um, but <clears throat> um, getting back to work after having my son. Um, 
And you know, when kids are, when babies are young, they don't sleep. So you're up at all odd hours of the night and you're trying to nurture this baby. And in my case, this is a baby that we longed for, prayed for, desired, I mean, for so many, many, many years, right? And so this was very special to us, right? But I also had this career path that I was on, which was also really important to me, right? And so figuring out, um, how to do both of those was 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 initially there was a shock um uh to just like going back to work uh mm -hmm. sometimes not sleeping at night but still having to be present and alert and functional um <clears throat> and at one point i did think well maybe i shouldn't do this work thing like you know after all i did want this baby for like eons and now i finally have this baby so maybe it's time to <laughs> yes. just say to, to, to close the door on work. So yeah, so that was, that was um, challenging for me. Um, but now, you know, my son's older, um, super Such energetic. So adorable. <laughs> um, you know, we're just, we're working through it, you know, with, with, agil with, with an emphasis on agility, obviously. Yeah. Okay, so I know we only have three minutes left. What advice would you give? I mean, I know you're very aware of the, you're aware of the program, the participants of the program. What advice would you give them as they're transitioning from being a student at university to being a professional? What advice would you give them? Yeah, so first off, there's that old adage that work hard um, and you will rise, you'll ascend um, in corporate or wherever you go. That's a lie. It's more than just working hard. It's about those soft skills, which um, I mentioned earlier. It's about figuring out how to relate to your peers, those uh, below you and, and those above you, um, and understanding the dynamics across each of those bands, right? So yes, work hard, but also figure that aspect of it out. Um, the other aspect is um, that I think is really important is don't box yourself into, don't pigeonhole yourself. Be open, be open to um, try new experiences. Be open to challenge more than anything. Like challenge yourself daily. Um, and if an opportunity feels comfortable, um, then seek something else that is more challenging at all times. And that allows you to continue to uh, renew your own skills, right? And, and to develop your brand. I think part of the reason why I've been successful um, it, uh, professionally um, is because I've been willing to experiment um, and to explore. I mean, how do you go from, from being a nurse with, an art history degree to uh, working in pop policy um, now, you know, and all the many things that I've done in between, but it's because I've been willing to experiment and I've always sought new challenges. Um, and then have fun. Yeah, I, I, I would say have fun as you're doing all of this, have fun. Don't think about it as a ladder that you need to climb or boxes that you need to check but really enjoy the experience, each experience and what it brings and, and the richness and the fullness that it adds um, to your long-term, um, uh, the arc of your career. Um, yeah. Thank you very much, Lise. I really appreciate you making the time for us today. Have a wonderful day. Thank you. Take care. 
Thank you for joining us today on the BMGA Leadership Speaker Series podcast. To be a part of our journey, please subscribe to the podcast and leave a review or potential question for our future guests on bmgaenterprise.com slash podcast. You can also follow us on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn for more insight into the acquisition of relevant skills for the fourth industrial revolution.